one of the things that's occurring right now, it's a, it's a good problem. It reminds me a lot of the first couple years, first three years of Door of Hope, is there has been a massive transition in churches throughout the city, not just through our city, through, throughout the nation. Um, COVID has created this weird, it's like there was a, a mass exodus from the church, and then there's been this, this uh, influx of all these new people coming uh, and Door of Hope is no exception to that. We have seen, um, I was just talking with friends that have been at Door of Hope um, since 2010. And uh, they said, we came last weekend and it's like we didn't recognize anyone. Um, and there's just this whole new wave of people coming. But we understand, like you might be new to the faith. You might not even be a believer yet. You might just be new to the church. And it takes time. You want to know who the church is that you're invested in. You want to, before people start opening up their checkbooks and deciding, I want to actually financially um, invest in what God is doing here. Um, but I, I just will say this. I actually have done a disservice through the years of, around my reluctance to talk about finances um, because one of the greatest blessings I've personally experienced, Darcy and I, has been that radical step of faith. When I first got saved, I didn't even know giving was a thing. Like I sat in the chair, I didn't even, why were they handing the basket by me? I'm like, that's weird. Who does that? And Darcy wasn't a believer yet. If I told her I wanted to give money to the church, she would have been like, no, do you want me to leave you? Um, So we understand that like people are at different places, but we also understand that there's a blessing that's being missed when people don't recognize the opportunity that's before them to live sacrificially. I mean, we're going to be considering uh, that reality today of what the upside down kingdom looks like in regards to sacrifice and service and significance. Um, And that that kingdom, those treasures that come to us often come as uh, what I like to refer to um, drawing from Isaiah as treasures of darkness. Uh, there's a mystery. There's a, there's a hiddenness. It seems counterintuitive. Um, people think, I can't afford this, but there's so much that we afford that we can't afford, and we do it anyway. And I think what we spend our money on shows what we're passionate about. And we want to be a people that are surrendered to Jesus. We don't hold to a 10% tithe, although I don't think that's a bad place to start. Um, but what we do see in Scripture is a call to, toward a radical generosity, toward a sacrificial posture that recognizes that all that I am, all that I have belongs to Jesus, and I want to contribute to his kingdom in every arena of my life. And this is why we give (laughs) to the church that we work for, um, because we believe that God blesses generosity and that we recognize we're just stewards of his possessions anyway. So um, thank you, uh, Tim, for stepping into the nobody wants to, like, who wants to give that conversation? Like, not me. Um, So I'm grateful we're an elder-led church. Uh, You know, you guys, every face, every face in the room. (laughs) And then there was, like, always those faces uh, that were like, I don't break rules, and I want to honor you. Um, for standing in the gap for people like me that breaks rules and everything. But yesterday when I went to New Seasons and, um, and the mask mandate was lifted and so employees weren't wearing it, but everybody else was wearing it except for me and like five people. And I just, is this bad that I just walked through the store and just smiled so broadly at everyone in a mask? Like, <laughs> like look at my beautiful face. Look, look at this tooth. 
<laughs> the gold tooth can shine again. Um, man, and then it's like, this is the treasures of darkness. We end up, we, we're, COVID's coming to an end, and now there were, we're dealing with the, the destabilization of Europe. And the, I was just reading, an, I'm like, the news is just not fun, is it? I was like reading today, it's like uh, the ex-prime minister um, of, of Czechoslovakia said, this could potentially put us into World War III. I'm like, that's not news I want today. Um, but the reality is, is that life is uncertain, but we can be certain about Jesus. And Jesus also said that in the last days, um, there will be wars and rumors of wars, that the love of many will grow cold. And we need to remember, I always like to use the, the framework of that we live in an apocalyptic age. And people are like, what do you mean by that? And I always say that the end of the age began the moment the incarnation happened, the moment that Jesus Christ stepped on this earth 2,000 years ago, put into motion the, the final age, which is the age of grace in which we live. But we are moving towards something. History is moving towards something. And what I want for us as a church is to be a people that understand that the cost of following Jesus is worth it. And it's not going to become easier to be a Christian. It's going to become more challenging. But I would argue that it's not easier to not be a Christian either. And I would say that the difficult pleasures are the things that give life ultimate significance. Um, we are shaped by trials. We have been, we, we will look back and there will be things God will utilize the last two years of COVID. He has used it in my life as is a continual way in which he is preparing us and shaping us and bringing us more and more into his likeness. And it may feel like you took 10 steps back Maybe you drank too much. Maybe you ate too much. Maybe you lost kind of ambition in the, in the isolation. But all of these things, God has the ability to take even the worst decisions we make and weave it into his redemptive purposes when we surrender to him. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Um, so I want to read, before we jump into the text, which we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. I want to just begin with this passage from Isaiah 45.3. This is an interesting passage because Isaiah, the prophets often brought kind of a severe judgment on Israel for its disobedience, its unfaithfulness to God as God's chosen people. And it didn't stop them from being God's chosen people, but as his chosen people, the people that were in covenantal relationship with him, it would think of it as marriage. They were an unfaithful people. They gave themselves to the gods of the land. And God brought judgment upon them. But that judgment was always meant to be a corrective judgment. It was a purging judgment. It was, it was meant to bring about restoration. God's ability to take dissonance and weave it into redemptiveness. Uh, redemption is a powerful reality. And in this passage in Isaiah 45, um, there's this interesting verse, verse 3, um, that speaks of, and in, he even goes on to talk about Cyrus, who is an evil um, an evil king uh, that would actually come against Israel as his anointed servant, which is a strange language to use as God, uh, God utilized um, uh, what we would say is uh, bad to bring about good. But here he says in that same theme of, of paradox, he said, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places 
that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name. Just so you know, when it says, I, the Lord, call you by your name, that he knows your name is not because he knows everything. It's because he cares. It's because he cares about you. There is an intimacy in this language that's used here in Isaiah that is consistent in God's interaction with humanity throughout the scriptures. That you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. That I'm, that I'm a jealous God. And I'm going to give you treasures of darkness. There's a promise here of blessing, but that utilization of the language of darkness is it is blessing that will come through difficulty. And and we have a hard time with this because the difference between Christians and non-Christians is not that we live without pain, but it's how we live with pain. It's how we deal with it. How do we go through suffering and maintain hope? And, and I think that this is the thing. It's like, we're, you know, one of the things that frustrates me um, in the age of, of kind of prosperity gospel, which I think has infiltrated kind of every arena of Christendom, because all of us come from a world that is consistently promising us um, all sorts of things, telling us that we deserve all sorts of things. And that infiltrates the church and it infiltrates how we think about God and what we think we deserve. And people walk away from their faith when they enter into suffering. It happens all the time. And it, part of it's because we do not have a solid theology of suffering, but suffering is an unavoidable reality in human existence. To live is to hurt. To love is to open yourself up to heartbreak. I mean, think about it. the greatest things in life come with really the greatest risk of nothing is more joyful than being a parent. My kids, I mean, the, the, Doris and I are just, we were just talking about just yesterday, just what a gift Henry and Hattie are to us. But what could be more painful than losing a child? Darcy's Darcy's parents, Darcy lost her only sibling, her brother. And, and I think about that for Melody all the time. My, my Nana, my, the woman that is my dearest, my mom's mom, she lost her firstborn son at 26 years old in a tragic car accident. And those wounds, when, I, when dad died, Nana called me, called me two days ago because I was stressing out about the memorial yesterday, which by the way was really beautiful. And thank you for all your prayers and emails and... Um, but yeah, grief is a real thing to, to open. I opened myself up. I could have let my dad continue to be a stranger. I pushed into a relationship with him. I came to love the man and then I, and then I lost him. Not long after I really had come to love him. And that's the reality. It's the risk of the great joy because the greater the joy, the greater the risk there is. In, in heartbreak, and you think about that when you fall in love, it's why, it's why pastors often become um, increasingly isolated. It's a natural instinct to protect ourselves from pain, and the easiest way to protect myself from the pain of being hurt by people, because after you get burned a few times, is just to avoid them. But that's not what Jesus ever did. He was, a, he was one who consistently put himself out there I always say one of the greatest examples of this is with Judas. He knew exactly who Judas was, but he never stopped loving him. He never stopped 
stopped pushing into him, allowing him into the inner circle, and he was ultimately betrayed by him, even with a kiss. Um, and I think that this is the power of these kinds of ideas that we want joy, but sometimes we're too afraid of the risk that's involved with it to give ourselves to it. And I think that this is the picture that we have in Matthew um, chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. And it's where Jesus begins to speak to his disciples. And you want to talk about treasures of darkness. It's the third time he mentions that he's going to the cross. Uh, and every time he mentioned that he was going to the cross, it immediately turned into a conversation about who would be the greatest. It's like the disciples didn't understand anything that he was saying. Um, and this is one of those powerful pictures that shows the treasures of darkness. And he deals with kind of three key paradoxes that we've hit on. And as we kind of bring this series to a close, I want us to just really think about them, especially in light of the announcement that Tim just made of what does it mean to experience, um, uh, experience the power um, the life that comes through surrender. What, what does it mean to experience the, the, uh, the significance that comes through suffering and, and the, the real joy of service? And he addresses all of these things really beautifully. Um, the principle of the Christian life is, is this. Let me just read this before we read the Matthew passage. It's in John chapter 12. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me wherever I am. My servant also will be. My Father will honor those who serve me. I love that picture that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. That our joy of bringing life to others is, is found through the surrender of our life for the, for the protection of life. It's the power, it's what, it's what inspires us about the people of the Ukraine right now. They are sacrificing life to protect life. And it's a, it's a, it's a painful thing to watch. Uh, and it's where it's always these kind of ugly times where heroic realities come out um, and, and I think that this is the picture is like the willingness to lay down life to protect life is a, is a beautiful paradox that should, should be embodied in the church. So let's look at this passage in Matthew because the first thing that Jesus is going to deal with is that sacrifice is the path to life itself. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, he says, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside, and he said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So here he is explicitly telling them, that he is going to be arrested, he is going to be beaten, and he is going to be crucified, but that he will actually raise from the dead. It's amazing. It's, you know, this is one of those powerful f realities that we only hear what we want to hear. Because their inability to hear it, it was wrapped up in their false understanding of what they thought the Messiah was supposed to be. 
they had wrong ideas about Jesus, and those wrong ideas about Jesus led to wrong understanding, uh, to, to unfortunately a complete failure of understanding in regards to what it is that he was coming to accomplish. Now, I want to just say on behalf of the disciples, it is not possible for them to have understood what Jesus was going to work out for them on the cross. Uh, that the understanding of the gospel could not come. It, it was a, it, talk about a treasure of darkness. It was something hidden until it was revealed, and it wasn't until they received the fullness of the Spirit um, that they would actually have illumination. But the principle plays out all the time in our lives. We hear what we want to hear, and often our misunderstanding of Jesus is what leads us to the frustration and the discouragement and the emptiness of our Christian lives because I think often we live far more like practical atheists than we do people that are in intimate relationships with Jesus. Because the Jesus that we worship is often a Jesus of our own making who is here to give us what we want and then we're like, we're like little bratty kids that, that get, all, get all upset that we didn't get what we want. I mean, how many times do I have to hear from people, it's like, that walk away from the church, it's like, I just can't handle, you know, I don't have an issue with, it's the bumper sticker, I, I don't mind Jesus, I just don't like his, his followers. Well, you know, welcome to the world of sin. This is why Eugene Peterson said, if we remember that people are sinners, we won't be surprised when they sin. He was including himself, by the way, because that's not to say to you, if you just remember everyone else around you sinful, you won't be, you know, disappointed in them. No, the point is, is that we are all sinful saints as Christian. A saint is nothing more than a sinner who's been forgiven. That's it. That's all a saint is. I like when Jesus says, you being evil, there's only two, there's two categories of people in Jesus' mind. Evil people that said yes to him and evil people that say no to him. Those are the only two categories. So people are like, you talk about, where's the victory if we don't talk about being saints? I, I think the victory actually is in understanding what we are in light of who Jesus is and then knowing what we are in Christ, that it's him in us. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Like I said, when I looked into my dad's face as he was dying, I believe he saw Jesus, not because I'm without sin, it's because Jesus uses us in spite of ourselves, because I said yes to his yes in that moment. And he made himself known through me in that moment. This is he will when we preach. We can be completely messed up, broken people. This is why people get confused all the time of like, how does a person get up in the pulpit and preach powerfully and we can see conversions and all this stuff and all the while they have a duplicitous life and they're doing all this horrible stuff like secretly behind the scenes. And I'm not sharing that as an illustration toward myself. Uh, I, that's why I use vulnerability. I try to keep it all out in the open. And people have left the church like, that guy is way too messed up. And I don't, and like, he talks way too much about his own brokenness. I'm like, it's be, I do that to protect myself from myself and to protect you from me being dumb and trying to keep things in the dark. Uh, this is why we need to understand that God's using of someone does not guarantee that person is, is living in a way that they ought to be living. Wherever Jesus is lifted up, God will honor it. And this is why people can get saved through the most unlikely characters and vehicles. Um, there are all kinds of charlatans that preach the gospel and can even preach a clear gospel even though their goal is their own pocketbooks. And th the sad reality is, is that Paul himself said, I don't care whether Jesus is preached 
for appropriate reasons or for vain ambition as long as the name of Jesus is lifted up. One of my best friends got saved listening to Joel Osteen. He didn't understand the gospel, but he, you know, that's, that was his introduction to the gospel. God used, you know, Osteen said enough about Jesus. I do believe he preaches a crossless Christ, um, which is deeply problematic and ultimately leads to a shallow faith that's built upon the idea that God's here to give you everything you ever wanted. Um, but it doesn't mean that God won't use it. <laughs> and that's one of the mysteries of the gospel. But here, Jesus is being clear. This is the picture of the ultimate emblem of love. It is sacrifice. The means to life as Christians does not come apart from death. Today there will be a celebration of baptisms uh, at the Rose Church. I'm so grateful they're letting us use that building. Baptism itself is a picture of you have died with Christ as you are submerged in the water and you have been risen into newness of life. Resurrection life, which is the power of the gospel being played out through our lives by the Spirit, comes only first through our identification with Christ in his death and his resurrection. There is no resurrection unless there's first death. There is no power or life for us until first we die to the lie of what God never intended. This is what it means to be born again. This is what Jesus meant when he says in John chapter 12 that unless a kernel of wheat fall into the ground and die, it will not bring forth life. And the power of the gospel comes through our willingness to die. I mean, how do you define life? It's the quality that dist distinguishes a vital and functional being from a dead body. But what does Scripture say about humanity apart from God? Paul gives us the definition in Ephesians. He says, once you were dead in your sins, but now you have come alive in Christ Jesus. That picture of us is what we can think of is that humanity is the, it, this, maybe it's why we kind of subconsciously have this weird fascination with zombies. It's a picture, it, it, it symbolizes a reality that we all feel. There is a deadness um, that comes from self-worship. There's a deadness that comes from making yourself the center of your own universe. There's a dissatisfaction, an emptiness in all of it, an absurdity to existence when if there is no God and all you have is all there is, there's an absurdity to life. And only the honest person, that's why I respect, I can respect a, um, a, a writer like Camus or Sartre or even David Foster Wallace who at least, yes, I don't know, that, well for sure Sartre uh, did not, not come to any, he was, a, he was a staunch atheist, who, but his his commitment to that also, oh, he was honest about the fact that life is absurd without ultimate meaning. And so the best we can do is make meaning for ourselves out of this absurdity, this chance we call existence. Wallace saw fully, um, I mean, he's my favorite author in the, of the last 50 years, he saw fully, when you read through his book, Infinite Jest, you can see he understood the torment of human existence, the meaninglessness, the deadness of it, the sadness in it. 
but he had this longing for, there was a compassion toward humanity in his writing. He had a longing to, to surpass it, but that's the thing. Ultimately, he took his own life. It's like, if you don't come to an ultimate meaning, if there is no foundation, if there's not the recognition that there is something bigger than ourselves, um, then, then what is there? And I think that this is the picture that, that Scripture gives us, is that Jesus shows us that the world has been giving us nothing but lies because self-preservation is not the means to existence. If we do not taste death in life, we will not be prepared for life after death. That is the bottom line. And I think that this is something that is, is really hard for us to accept. And listen, human existence is dying a thousand deaths. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's something that we, we, we do again and again and again. Each day, we have to die to ourselves. We, I mean, marriage is one of the ultimate places where you are consistently confronted with the selfishness of your own desires and, and how, like, I can be such a baby when my, I feel like I'm not, you're not, you're not putting me first. No, I'm, uh, because you're not putting me first. Like, the, in those, those where you get stuck, it's, you know, this is like the beauty of counseling. And you, counseling has always been this, this humbling experience of like, my God, I'm selfish. Uh, I'm sorry, Darcy, so selfish. Uh, and, and that's the, the, the beauty of, of marriage is when there is a surrender. I die, I die to what I want so that I can actually experience real life in the marriage by serving her. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. When two people both do it, ne needs are met. But this is the life that comes through death. And I think that the power of, of this passage is that the disciples didn't understand it. And I don't think we're that different today because we don't like to die because every time you die to the self-life. And I'm, and I'm speaking of this in a, in a, in a metaphorical um, or I should say, I'm speaking of this in a very real spiritual way, that death to self is a willing surrender. It's actually a discipline to give Jesus the ability to be in control. It's a discipline that is harder than any other discipline. People say, well, what, did, what do you have to do for Jesus? Give him control. Well, that seems easy. That's too easy. Oh, is it easy? Is it really easy to give Jesus? Is it easy to give anyone control? I, it's not. It's hard. Think about, uh, I, I'm like a pretty crazy driver. It is no, Darcy has to die to her desire for safety when she drives with me. And I'll get really mad. I'll be like, I'm like, quit telling me what she's like. Well, quit speeding and ride. And, and I think she's being, you know, just like, why are you being like that? And I'm like, oh, because I'm endangering our family. But that still seems unreasonable. Um, but there is a, everything we do that, that, that there's, a, there's a consistent taking a chance, if you will. To, to live requires a continual willingness to surrender our own rights. If we really want to live, there, is a, there has to be a willingness to die. And I, I, don't, think, I don't think we get it. I, I like the, the, the question, are you allowing Jesus to be responsible for you or are you losing yourself in a refusal to release 
your rights to, your good, to the good master. Because what is he asking you to die to? And when you ask that question, that is a hard thing. You know what it was like to die to my dream of making it in music? And it still comes up. I still make music. And there's still in the back of my mind, like, maybe it's not too late. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's always that thing where we, we die to all kinds of things. Most of us aren't living out what we wanted to be when we were children. Um, there, there is a death to dreams. There is a death to control. Um, there is even just the dying to the loss. Um, there's a death that's involved when we lose someone we love, whether it's someone that leaves you, breaks your heart, or it's the actual physical loss of someone to death itself. Death is always key. But what I'm trying to say is that no matter how it is that you experience death, it has the ability to bring life if we surrender it to Jesus. And that is a powerful thing. Even in the loss of someone, I remember when my dear friend Craig died who came to faith at Door of Hope, through his cancer, right before he died, literally two weeks before he died, his father came to faith. And he would not have come to faith had he not watched his son walk in faith as he died, life through death. The laying down of life so that someone else can experience, the, the willingness to die so that someone else can live. Because ultimately, this life is not all there is. There is, there is the ultimate hope of life beyond this life. Secondly, there, suffering is the path to significance. In, 20 verses, uh, in chapter 20, verses 20 through 23, he says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons, this is a bold mom move right here, man. This is a, talk about a helicopter parent. Um, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons. <laughs> that is some serious mom control. Like she brings both of her adult sons to Jesus and kneeling down asked a favor of him. And, he, and Jesus being the loving and patient person that he is, he says, what is it that you want? She said, grant that one of these two, I don't care which one it is, just as long as it's one of them. <laughs> this is what we call living vicariously through your children trying to overcome the disappointments of your own failures. Uh, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left. So one of them gets the right hand, which is always the supreme, but as long as the other one still gets the left in your kingdom. What a weird thing to ask. Isn't that, have you ever really thought about how weird it was that she asked that? Um, and then he said, you don't know what you're asking. <laughs> um, and Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared for by my Father. I love what Jesus does here is because what he brings them to is you want, you want the gift, you want the position you want to be honored, but are you willing to actually go through what is necessary to experience the honor that you desire? Now, those boys could have easily said to their mom, no, you cannot go to Jesus and ask that on our behalf. That's crazy. But they may have gone to her and said, mom, will you ask this for Jesus? <laughs> Mommy, will you ask Jesus if we can be on his right and left? <laughs> 
Of course, my sons. Anything for you, babies. Um, but, but I think that this is the, the picture is how often everything in our society is driven by immediacy. We want the results. One of the tragic th- things that I witnessed in my dad, one of the lessons I learned of what, what I don't want to be like is, the, is this belief that he could become a millionaire by doing anything but working. And he loved gambling. And he would tell me, even when he was sick and couldn't gamble anymore, he's like, he's like, as soon as I can walk again, you know, he's like, I'm good. Your old man's good at poker. I've won a lot of money. And I'm like, I know, but we're sitting in your little cabin and you're living on $800 a month. Like, so whatever money you won, you clearly had the gift of spending it as well. Um, so there, this reality, this kind of this visions of grandeur, the average high school student today, the most common desire, the number one, number one desire for career paths, it, it, based upon a bunch of surveys that have been done in the last few years, has been to be a famous influencer. That is a terrifying reality. Famous, nobody can even really define what fame is. We all know what it is when we see it, but nobody knows how to actually get it. And and nobody actually ever seems to really want it once they have it. And yet, this is the thing. And the idea is like, I watched that fake famous documentary on, on people that want to be influencers on Instagram. And they're like, their whole thing is buying fake followers and fake likes so that fame now is driven by a numerical number. How many, how many likes you have. It's not even driven by talent or gifts. And when they were asked, why do you want to be famous? They're like, so I don't have to work. Because once you have, a, once you have a, a 100,000 followers, people start giving you stuff for free. There's tons of people, social media influencers, they make their living off of just how many likes they have. And, and in, a, in an age of where everything is driven and where people are reduced to the means to a technological age, it's not surprising that companies have stopped. We don't we don't watch TV anymore. We don't have TV channels anymore. Some of you might, but I don't, I don't, do they exist still? Um, and, and so commercials are not, it's not something you watch anymore. Commercials for kids today is on, is, is on Snapchat. It's on, it's on Instagram. It's on, it's, it's, it's your social media world. Your, your, your commercials come through your Instagram account and, and it's terrifying. What the heck? What the heck is the internet anyway? Because I'm like, look at one pair of pants and next thing I know, I've got like ads from like every company in the world trying to sell me their pant that kind of looks like the one I looked at or I didn't even look at. It sometimes feels like they put the one on that I was thinking about, but never even typed a search for. I sometimes feel like my son is like messing with me or something. I'm like, how did it know I wanted that? Um, Maybe I didn't. That's the power of it, this crazy artificial intelligence. Maybe that's the Antichrist. I never thought about it. (laughs) But I think about this, this idea, significance for us is this thing that we get from instantaneous, we we want instantaneous acknowledgement. And what Jesus points out is, listen, the cup of suffering is the path to meaning. Now, a lot of people misread this because there's this idea that Jesus on the cross drank the cup of wrath. Um, that's, not, that's not 
the cup that he's talking about. <laughs> Jesus did not drink the cup of wrath. He, he did drink the cup of judgment uh, to its rim, but the, this is the cup of suffering that he is talking about. And all of his disciples uh, were going to experience suffering. In fact, he tells them that to follow him, to expect it. It's the first message we gave in this series was the reality that suffering is an unavoidable reality and, and the peace that Jesus promises is a peace not um, after the suffering, but it's a peace that comes in the midst of it. In uh, this picture here, he tells them, you indeed will drink from my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. This is the picture I think that we need to understand about significance because our age defines significance as the quality of being worthy of attention. It's, a, it's importance. It's the desire to be known that often turns into the desire to be well known. It's the desire to do good that often turns into the desire to be great. And, and I think that our longings are often fixed upon a deeply inflated view of our own self-worth. I, <laughs> I was struck by this um, because when I was in my early 20s, this is why I promise you, do not trust your belief in your own awesomeness. I don't care how many books promote it because it is embarrassing, actually, to think about how convinced I was of how good my songs were that are so comically bad. Like, I listen to them now and I'm like, that is not a good song. Like, stupid lyrics, like bad recording. And I'm like, I'm going to be like the Beatles. I mean, this is like how we are amazing at convincing ourselves that we are worthy of the praise that nobody else is giving us. It's weird. And then we're hurt that we're not getting what we think we deserve. No, the path to significance comes first through that laying down my life for the good of others. And when I sacrifice my life for another, that, there is beauty in that. There is always joy that comes out of that. Always. Test that. Go serve at a hospital. Go sit with someone that's dying. Go, go serve at Portland. I, I challenge you to give of your time for the good of others in which you get no credit and nothing in return and tell me that it doesn't bring an internal sense of peace that is often missing in your life. And maybe you've never done it before, and maybe that's why you've never experienced peace. But peace comes through giving yourself away, and significance comes through the suffering that's involved in giving yourself away. And I think that this is the beauty of Simone Wheels, uh, the great Catholic mystic of the 20th century. Strange woman. I loved her writing, though. She wrote this, the extreme greatness of Christianity lies in the fact that it does not seek a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use of it. What a powerful picture. Revelations 2.10, do not fear any of those which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation. Be faithful into, until death and I will give you the crown of life. Suffering is the path to significance. Finally, service is the path to greatness. In Matthew 20, 24 through 28, when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. 
only because they didn't have their moms ask first. I just want you to know. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not come to be served but to serve. His position as the Son of God, the creator of all things, the one who is worthy alone of all worship shows how it is that we are to live. That's what was the power of the incarnation. God in the flesh. What people saw was man as God intended man to be. That his greatness came through his self-humbling. We talk about, you know, I hear pastors talk about the glory of God. The, the, that treasure of darkness reality. That holy other aspect of God. But I would argue that his glory is found most powerfully in his self-humiliation as revealed through Jesus on the cross. And here he makes it clear. I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. Our age defines greatness. It's the quality of being distinguished or eminent. It's the state of superiority to have the world bow before you. It's the thing that Satan promised Jesus in the wilderness temptation. If you bow down before me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And you know what's powerful about that statement is Jesus does not deny that Satan has reign over those kingdoms. And Jesus, in his refusal to bow down to Satan, says, he says, get behind me. Get away from me. And this, this is the thing is because ultimately Satan may have rule over the kingdoms, but it is a temporary rule. And Jesus has rule over the whole cosmos. And every knee shall bow. But his greatness came through his sacrifice. Because it is through his sacrifice that we discover what real love is. A Christian picture of agape love is a love that is poured out for the unlovable. And the thing that you and I are going to be called to as the days grow increasingly dark and uncertain is can we truly love our enemies? And that's a hard question to answer when many of us don't even love our friends well. We're so busy trying to love ourselves that we have forgotten that our ability to be conduits of love is driven by our, our willingness to see the other in front of us. And we can't know God if we look away from one another. And here we see that whoever wants to be great must be the servant. And he is saying, your proof that you are my children that you are a part of the kingdom of God is going to be in how you lay down your life for one another. I'm going to lay down my life for you so that you in turn, in the power of my spirit, can do it for one another. We can't fall into this place of, that's why the, the, it's so heartbreaking to see the desire for fame is so prevalent in our culture. The desire to be known um, and not, and, and to be more known it's a competition of how known we can be and yet the emptiness of all of it 
and how quickly people forget. I mean, think about it. How many of us in this room know the names of our great-great-grandparents? Like, it's just accept it. Nobody's going to remember you in 100 years, and it's okay. Like, uh, our desire, of Jesus will. Give yourself to the one who won't forget you. <laughs> and, and don't worry about your greatness. Worry about his greatness in and through you. Philippians 3.10 says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's why Paul says, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is your logical worship. So service is the path to greatness. Suffering is the path to significance. Sacrifice is the path to life. The Christian life is all about treasures of darkness. And the greatest joys in life come through the most difficult pleasures. But I promise you they're worth it. It's worth it. Loving Jesus is worth the suffering that's involved in following him. And honestly, the suffering involved in following him does not compare to the suffering of life without him. I'll take that suffering any, any day of the week over the suffering uh, that came to me in a time when life was absurd because it had no meaning or foundation. Give me a firm foundation in a world of hurt and I'll have more joy than someone that says, I'm my own God and all they find is emptiness and futility and frustration. May we be a people that live sacrificially. May we lay down our lives so that we can really taste life and be a conduit of life to a city where there's so much death, spiritual death. Let's bring life to the city. Let's show Portland that we are a people that have met the king and we have tasted life and we know his word is life. Who else shall we go? Where else shall we go? You alone, O oh Lord, hold the words of life. I want us to be to that place where Peter, there's no other options. Jesus is that good. He loves you guys. I love you guys. I'm so grateful for all of you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. Thank you for the treasures of darkness. Lord, that every event in our lives, no matter how painful, when surrendered to you, we find grace. We find grace in the midst of the pain. And I just ask right now that by your Holy Spirit, you would guide us and direct us into the truth of who you are. As we come to the table and we remember you, your body broken for us, your blood spilled for us, the bread, my body broken for you, eat this in remembrance of me, the cup, the blood that is spilled for the forgiveness of the sins of many, drink this in remembrance of me. May we remember you today. May we celebrate you as we come to the table and as we worship you in song. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, friends. This is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheopedx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.